This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. We began the week as Ontario residents 80 and over were invited to move up their second COVID vaccine dose from the original date of 16 weeks from their first shot. But there are still some unsettling numbers showing that a higher percentage of people in the 80-plus age group have yet to get a first dose of vaccine compared with those who are younger. This does not appear to be because of greater hesitancy among older people, but rather more limited access to the vaccine, especially for those with mobility issues. As for the crowd who got AstraZeneca as the first vaccine, many Ontario residents in the 60 to 64 age range have already received their second shot of AstraZeneca as the window between first and second doses is reduced to 12 weeks. Libby Snymer was joined by the Zoomer squad for reaction to the latest round of news. Peter Mugrich, senior editor at Zoomer magazine, David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President at Zoomer Media, and Bill Van Gorder, CARP's Interim Chief Policy Officer. Shortening the, the time between uh, the, the two shots, CARP's been advocating this for the last uh, three months. We're really pleased to, to see this uh, happening, and uh, this means that people who want to get their vaccine can get it more quickly than they uh, did before, and it also means that uh, maybe we can be more more sure that the government's promise that everybody would have both vaccinations by the end of the summer uh, just may happen now. David, this was anticipated. I have to give credit. They did say if more came in, they would accelerate. I remember, Libby, we had a show way back at the beginning when most of us or all of us had our first shot, and we're saying, yeah, I got my second appointment, and it's not till and it looked like three months out, and there was a lot of controversy about that. But they did say all along that they were erring on the side of caution, and if the supply came up, they would they would shorten the time period, and it's good to know that they're, uh, they're doing that. Uh, Peter, is this just politicians uh, under-promising and over-delivering? You know, throughout this whole um, rollout, the, the supply of vaccine has been so erratic, and so I, I guess they didn't feel they could make any promises, any, uh, you know, concrete promises at the beginning of it. But now that it looks like some of the supply issues have been uh, solved, they're, they're uh, looking on the bright side. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm sure they're going to bask in the, um, you, you know, the, the effect of that news has on people. But, uh, I, you know, I, I don't think it was planned. They, they didn't know ahead of time. David, last week we had very upsetting numbers that, first of all, a lot of people over 80 haven't had their first dose yet, and that is because they can't get to the doses very easily. You know, now presumably there may be some issues for those who will have trouble booking. Well, I think I think it just shows you what happens when you have too many topics chasing a limited attention, both you know, media, public, government, um, the government quite properly prioritized 
vaccinating people inside the actual long-term care homes as being the most vulnerable. But in the wider community, there were challenges at the beginning. I remember we had several shows talking about uh, difficulty getting online, difficulty understanding English. Are they going to run mobile you know, uh, clinics and drive right up to where you live, or are you going to have to get yourself to some location? And um, I don't know that they've been reporting on that regularly. I think we kind of assumed that that was going to work itself out and people would gradually figure out how to do it and where to go, especially since you've now got um, appointments in less than a week at pharmacies for people in their, in their young thirties, as I know from my own family, uh, you thought, oh, well, the older people, surely they must've gotten it by now. And now we find out maybe they didn't. So I don't know whether they're, they're still trying real hard on that or whether they've just let it uh, fritter away. Yeah, they are falling through the cracks, and this has been uh, this has been the case long before COVID in terms of the attention to what ends up being the majority of uh, older Ontarians who don't live in long-term care facilities. Once again, we've got to hope that that, that the experiences during COVID will wake officials up to the position they're uh, putting uh, these uh, very much at-risk uh, at-risk people, and something is is being done about it. I hope our listeners will be patient and do whatever it takes to get that uh, dose that's coming to them as quick as they can get it. Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer at CARP. David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President at Zoomer Media. And Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. Fight Back's Monday Zoomer Squad. Later in the week on Thursday, it was announced that first-dose AstraZeneca recipients could begin booking their second AZ shot 12 weeks later by contacting their pharmacy or primary health provider as of yesterday. Starting Monday, first-dose AstraZeneca recipients who would like Pfizer or Moderna as their second dose may book their second appointment 12 weeks after the first at Ontario.ca slash book vaccine. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Ontario's incoming Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Kieran Moore, takes over from Dr. David Williams, June 26th. We're hearing good things about Dr. Moore, who has a stellar record as Kingston's Medical Officer of Health throughout the pandemic. The news about Dr. Moore broke last weekend, around the same time we learned Health Canada had extended the expiry date on tens of thousands of AstraZeneca doses from May 31st to July 1st. To discuss both of these announcements, Libby was joined on Monday by Dr. Gerald Evans, Chair of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Queen's University, and Fightback's pharmacist friend, John Papasturgio. Generally, Libby, with any uh, drug, there's capacity built into the expiry. It's not like you hit the expiry date and all of a sudden the drug goes bad, right? Uh, what we worry about is maybe it's not as efficacious or maybe the drug will degrade. I have seen in my career, especially with very expensive drugs, where uh, they're becoming short-dated and a third party will do uh, you know, an analysis of the stability and deem it to be okay, and then the expired date can be extended. So it's not the first time that I've seen this in my career. It does happen. I imagine because of the importance of getting this, this vaccine uh, into the arms of Canadians, they've probably done that work. 
and uh, Health Canada has made the decision that it is okay. What's the difference between testing for the stability and uh, testing for the efficacy? Because we do know that the efficacy, as you just said, starts to go down, you know, after the expiry date. Yeah, well, I mean, it it can. It can. And I think what, what they probably looked at when they did those stability tests was the vaccine still active? Was there as many particles there post, you know, uh, the dating as there was prior? And there probably was, which would, uh, you'd be then able to infer that you should get a similar immune response. And that's all we're really doing with the vaccine, right? Is generating an immune response. So as long as those viral particles are there or the, uh, you know, uh, the same amount in the case of uh, this vaccine, uh, mRNA is there, you'll, you know, you should be able to get a similar immune response. And I think that's probably how the decision was made. That being said, I haven't seen any data for it. They haven't shown us any data. Uh, but, you know, we have a lot of Canadians right now that got uh, first dose uh, AstraZeneca, and I think it's important that we dose them with the booster, right? Okay. John, thanks very much. We've been trying to reach and have successfully reached Dr. Gerald Evans. We all want to know your reaction. We're getting a new chief medical officer of health from your region. Your region has been doing amazingly well throughout this. So so what is your reaction? Uh, well, I, I, I've been saying very oftentimes uh, our loss is the province's gain. Uh, my, my colleague and friend, uh, uh, Dr. Kieran Moore, is a great MOH, and I think he's going to be a really superb uh, chief medical officer of health for the province. He's, got, uh, he's a great communicator um, and really has all the, all the necessary skills and uh, knowledge in that, I think, to do a great job. Do you have any insight at all um We've heard from a number of people over 80 at, and booking or trying to book vaccines, and it seems like the situation is very different in, in different places across the province. One woman, after waiting an hour, told that that uh, no appointments were available, and, and uh, somebody here, uh, you know, getting an email saying, you're up tomorrow. Uh, yeah, there's the, the provincial system certainly uh, has had its uh, ongoing problems. Uh, with trying to get people booked in and stuff, and and the two things you just described, uh, I've also heard described amongst uh, amongst people I know. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's not the best uh, circumstance to have that happen. Obviously, clearly, um, as was just um, stated when I came on uh, the line today, is that you know we need to get second doses into people, and particularly into. Uh, some vulnerable individuals, um, just to make sure that their protection is is optimized. So um, we need less of that and and more sort of uh, clear stuff. And I I'm, I know a lot of people around the province have been reaching out specifically through their public health units, and some of the public health units have very good systems in place, which are really helping to facilitate those second doses. Dr. Gerald Evans, chair of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Queen's University, and Fightback's pharmacist friend, John Papasturgio. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, thinking ahead to the next provincial election already. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. 
A year ahead of Ontario's next provincial vote, we've learned that Premier Doug Ford is shifting into election mode. A published report this week quotes unnamed advisors who say a significant cabinet shuffle is likely during the summer. And backroom strategist Corey Tanaik has left his lobbying job to run the campaign for Doug Ford. The story says some of the MPPs in comfortable PC seats could lose their cabinet posts, in part because they apparently pushed to ease lockdown restrictions back in March, which ended up resulting in a heightened third wave of COVID-19 in Ontario. Joining Libby's Nimer on Tuesday to discuss, former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister Charles Souza, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village. Never know how this is going to play out, but it's understandable that the Premier is trying to reset and uh, rejuvenate and, and provide some more diversity, bolster some of those ridings that may not be as highly representative. It's a rural-urban split that continues to exist. I'm not surprised. This does have to have. This does tend to happen as the election time comes. But he's going to. Be, the biggest challenge for him is he's no longer running on the record of others. He's no longer running and pointing fingers and and suggesting how bad somebody is, and that's why you should vote for me. He, he's going to be running on his record. And at times, it's not, it's not been pretty. It's been a roller coaster ride for him. He's done some good things in respect to some of the developers that he's had, but. He's also made some glaring issues that have cost the province a lot of money, be it with Hydro One or be it the fight, the partisan fight with the, with the feds on carbon tax. These things weren't necessary. Um, and he was best at when he was conciliatory in a cooperative uh, approach. He was actually sort of an anti-Trump in some of that respect. But given who he's bringing in, looks like he's uh, getting ready for negative ads and being more aggressive and up for a fight. and uh, But to do that, he needs to have some, some new faces in cabinet. John, now according to this report, and again, it's on anonymous sources, uh, he's thinking that the cabinet is too male and too white. Really? He's thinking that? Well, he could be. Uh, and, it's, and it's probably <laughs> something that he's looking at as, a, as, as, as he's looking at sort of, you know, how he's going to change things writ large. I, I'm not surprised that, that they're talking about a cabinet shuffle. In fact, we've mentioned it on this show a couple of times that that he's probably due for one, and and Charles knows specifically because of you know obviously having been in cabinet that there's certain times within a term that that the premier and, and that you need a refresh and, and a relook, be it based on a policy changes or performance or you know gearing up to an election, and in this case it's probably all of the above. Um, I think he needs to. There's some ministers that have just been worn out and tired as a result of the pandemic and working way over some of the others. Some performers have been better than others. Um, but, you know, the fact is that <clears throat> we're about a year, we're in fact a year away from an election campaign. Uh, the party has uh, put in place some full time campaign workers now. There's been an absolute shift in messaging, shift in, in how things have been doing. So I would imagine the last, uh, one of the last things that they would want to do is, is in preparation for the election is actually have a cabinet shuffle and have a refresh. So I'm not surprised by it. I don't, you know, I don't want to speculate on names and who's who, because I think to Charles's point, people that know I'm saying it and people that don't know will always speculate. Um, you know, but I think, I think there'll be some that, that will need to have changed and some will be brought in. Uh, to reflect a bit more of a, of, a, of a more refreshed cabinet. There's a bigger issue for, for Doug Ford, 
And I, I, as I think the question is, is starting to come back to people's minds, you know, who is Doug Ford and what does he stand for? This cabinet shuffle is, I think, a way for the premier to reset the agenda and begin to define who is the real Doug Ford moving into the next election. Because I think that although opinion might be down right now, I think it's still a blank slate for him. And if he can define it in a way that resonates with people, I think he still has a chance of, of, of winning the next election. But, you know, I think he really has to do some of that soul searching about, you know, what does he stand for? Who is he? And what does he bring to the people of Ontario? Because, you know, I think, God hoping, God willing, the worst of the crisis is behind us with respect to COVID. But the rebuilding work is going to be just as hard. Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, and former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister Charles Souza, Fight Back's Tuesday strategy panel. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. The provincial PCs announced this past week that all long-term care homes must have COVID-19 vaccination policies for staff in place by July 1st. All employees will either have to show proof of being fully vaccinated, provide documentation of medical reasons for not getting vaccinated, or partake in an education program explaining the benefits of vaccination and the risks associated with failing to get vaccinated. Right now, apparently, none of this is mandatory unless people want to work in more than one nursing home. Will this be enough to bring change in the absence of a mandatory vaccination policy? Libby asked this of a panel of experts on Tuesday. Dr. Doris Grinspun, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, Jane Medes, staff lawyer and institutional advocate at the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly, and Samantha Peck, Executive Director of Family Councils Ontario. The way I see it is based on what I've heard from families, knowing that COVID has devastated long-term care, Families have lived through and continue to live through the feedback and trauma of COVID-19. And they've jumped at the chance to get vaccinated. And now those caregivers are asking, why hasn't my mom's PSW been vaccinated? So I think this is a first uh, good step. I've heard from homes that have done this fantastically, where they've been working with their, their staff teams on access to vaccination, on education and peer support. I'm not sure that it's enough. Uh, yet, but I do know that there are homes that have done this really well already. I had been wondering, Jane, how this was different. Apparently, there is uh, an advantage legal and otherwise to making it formal. How do you see it? Well, I mean, certainly there, I think anything that can assist, I think that, um, you know, requiring vaccinations just overall is, is difficult. It is a medical, um, procedure, so you need consent. Um, we do have other, you know, vaccines, though, that are required, for example, in schools. So I think that, you know, doing it in the way that they're doing now, um, you know, certainly is something that I'm hoping will, um, increase the number of vaccines, um, among staff. And, and again, as Sam said, you know, some homes have done it very well, and I think it's that communication piece that they have uh, been able to speak to the staff, um, have ensured that they get to vaccines, that they're not losing uh, money if they're going. Um, all of those things are going to, to really help. 
Um, I'm a little confused as to why the government is downloading the um, the training portion to the homes. It seems to me that it would make much more sense for the, the, the ministry to put together what they say is an appropriate, you know, training and, and uh, or information session um, instead of having to get every home and every system to create their own. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me at a time when we're low on staff. Doris, how do you see it? Uh, I think that uh, the move is an excellent move. I think that the programs need to be localized, cannot be uh, a cookie-cutter approach. Uh, the best way we know based on best practices uh, for people to uh, get vaccines is if you bring the vaccines to their workplaces. Let's remember that many of these workers are workers that uh, come from compromised communities, from uh, complex life situations, from previous histories um, of, of mistrust, including mistrust. Uh, that we need to understand, and hence why you, when you bring the vaccine to the home and it's given by the staff in the home, the uptake will be significantly, significantly better. And when you look at the homes that have done well, usually it's because the workers didn't need to travel for an hour or two sometimes and be on a lineup and not being paid for that, but the vaccine was brought in many instances to the home uh, they had champions in the home. Uh, sometimes the nurses that work in the home gave the vaccines, and that's when it worked best. I really just hope that, you know, the government moves forward with, um, you know, ensuring that everyone who goes into long-term care, whether they be the staff, um, the essential workers at the moment, uh, or the essential caregivers, um, or public health and um, inspectors also, that they're ensuring that they're all doing their best to get them all vaccinated and not just um, people who are uh, working in those homes. Jane Meadis at the Advocacy Center for the Elderly, Doris Grinspun, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, and Samantha Peck, Executive Director of Family Councils Ontario. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. John in London phoned about the process of getting a second COVID vaccine appointment. Now, my wife and I, we had our first shot. And when we got our shot, we were told that we were pre-booked for a second shot on the 14th of July. Yep, four now months. Now they come along and they've said, well, now you can book for your second shot starting the 14th of June. Why would they not simply send us a, a, an email and say, your date for your second shot has been changed. Mary in Trenton also called on Monday with her experience of trying to book a second COVID vaccine appointment. This morning I called the 
provincial number. I'm over 80, and I understood that as of today, uh, those over 80 were able to book an early second appointment. I got it. It was less than an hour, which wasn't a bad wait. I expected that. Then they went down. They said, at this time, there are no appointments available. Wow. And I'm over 80. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Elsie in Innismore, who phoned about her second dose booking and how the system is not working for those who don't have access to transportation. On Monday, I got on uh, online at about 8 o'clock and uh, tried to book an appointment for my husband, who is 88. And the first thing they came up with was Lindsay. And I looked at it and I said, oh, well, where's the Peterborough site? So I backed up one screen and put Peterborough in again. And when it came up, it, Peter, Lindsay was not there. The next closest was um, Markham, Scarborough, or Aurelia. So I clued in that these are the only available appointments that there are. And we managed to book into Markham today at 3 o'clock. So Good for you. Leaving. How are you and getting there? Uh, well, we're driving, and it's about an hour and 15 minutes. But I said to my husband, what do the people do that can't get in their car and drive an hour and a half to get their second shot? That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. And call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.